0: Welcome to the Friday podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and it is US Open Thursday. I'm recording this right now in the Dratty house on Wednesday afternoon. Actually, I just came back from the golf course. I walked the back nine out there with Sahih Thigala and a few other players, and I definitely have some thoughts on what I saw that I hope will kind of provide some information and maybe some context insight for your viewing of the tournament that's happening right now. And in the next few days, a little bit later in this episode, I'm going to bring on golf historian Wayne Morrison. We're going to talk about the Philadelphia school of golf architecture. This was a group of golf architects that basically changed the course of American golf course design in the 1910s and twenties. And they were a massive influence on George Thomas, who was the most important architect behind the North course at LA country club. So that's coming up a little bit of a historical deep dive with Wayne Morrison. But first I just wanted to sort of empty my notebook on the back nine at LA North, which I just walked, as I mentioned, I think it's probably the more underappreciated nine at LA and that's for a good reason. You know, the front nine at LA is one of the best collections of golf holes anywhere But obviously, on the telecast this week, the back nine will probably be more prominently featured, at least on the weekend, right? So I I thought I'd go through the three specific parts of the back nine that I'm looking forward to. I, I want to boil it down. I had a bunch of notes on the back nine. I really want to kind of narrow it down to three specific things to look for, three specific spots on the golf course that I think you should keep an eye out for when you're watching the tournament. And I'm not going to talk about the very famous par threes on the back nine, 11 and 15. 11 is the downhill reverse Redan. That's going to play very long. And 15 is the extremely short little par three. Those are going to be covered plenty this week. You'll, you'll hear a lot about them. I'm looking for some spots on the back nine that are maybe a little more under the radar, but might show up in some form on the telecast. So going in order, my first spot on the back nine to watch is the approach to the 13th hole. Now, a lot of people are going to talk about the drive on 13. Basically, it's a very wide fairway. But if the pros hit driver, they'll have to hit a plateau on the left edge of the fairway. That's about 20 to 25 paces across. I actually went out there and paced this <laughs> earlier today. That's that's exactly the kind of nerd I am. I, I went out and, and checked out exactly how far across the plateau is. It's going to be very hard to hit. And it's hard to tell exactly where the ball needs to land in order to stay up on the plateau because it just kind of gradually slopes down. Now, that slope down is the big factor on the tee shot, because if you're if you're somewhat center or right of center with your drive, your ball is going to roll down to the bottom of a hill on the right side of this hole. And that's just going to be fun to watch. Right. So that's the drive. But. What happens after players get in those funky positions on this hole is really what I'm looking forward to. The approach from the bottom of the hill is super tough. Not only is it blind, but you have to carry a greenside bunker and somehow get your ball to stop on the green. And, you know, balls are kind of rolling into the rough at the bottom of this hill. So there's not going to be much spin being produced on these shots. It's going to be really tough to carry that bunker and get it to stop close to a pin. So I think we're going to see a lot of players end up in the rough to the left of the fairway. They're not going to want to mess with the right side of this hole. I think if they miss, they're often going to miss to the left. Now, that's not a great spot. There are a few trees over there and and you could end up blocked out. But it's in line with a big short grass run up to the green. The green opens in that direction. So I think we'll get a lot of punch shots from the left rough, you know, kind of under tree limbs, around tree limbs, and these shots will have to land well short of the green and then roll up there. There are some feeding contours on the green that should help these shots if they're reasonably accurate, but there are also some rejecting contours on the exterior of the green that could accentuate badly judged run-up attempts so it's just going to be really cool to watch i think that'll be a very interesting second shot because players are going to get in funky positions you know if they if they hit the plateau if they hit that one section of the fairway that's good then good for them but i i didn't see that much out there today i didn't see guys really getting in that position i saw them missing left missing right and that's when some of this interesting stuff starts to happen on 13. all right My second part of the back nine to look out for is the fairway on the par five, 14th hole. This is a really tricky tee shot. The fairway kind of turns to the right around a huge bunker. The pros aren't going to have much trouble carrying the bunker, but they're going to have trouble not running through the outside of the dog leg on the other side. You have to get really far to the right off the tee to avoid doing that. But if you go too far right, there's a big drop-off into some trees. So I think pros are going to be a little bit leery of that. So a lot of drives are going to run through the elbow of the dog leg. And some of the thickest rough on the course is right there. It's, It's really... Really, kind of wispy and weird in spots and really thick and hairy in spots and and, and you know sort of like a a brillo pad effect. I, I don't know if I'm describing this, right, but it's very it's this Bermuda rough. and in that particular spot, it's just kind of inconsistent and in some places so, so thick. So that's there. And then what's also there is a big hospitality pavilion that's pretty close to the fairway. That place is going to get absolutely shelled. You know, so, you know, it, it, it's a little bit ridiculous, but in a couple of ways, 14 should be fun to watch off the tee. And then if players manage to hit the fairway, they'll have to decide whether to go for the green and you can get in some really hairy spots around that green. If you have kind of a fairway wood or long iron approach, players aren't going to always hit it. I saw Sahih Figala just try a bunch of different variations of chips and pitches around that green. And I think what he was testing out was, what's it like if I go for this green and miss? And that presumably would be part of his calculus when he decides whether to go for the green or not. Right? He knows the bad positions that he can get in, and, and that's going to factor into to how aggressive he is on the whole. So really interesting set of decisions and dynamics in the 14th fairway. That's my my second spot to watch on the back nine. Okay, final spot to watch on the back nine. Anytime players miss the 17th green. There's just so much happening around and on that green. The short game shots, the recovery shots are are just going to be so varied and just weird. The green is basically this narrow strip that runs on a diagonal in relation to the fairway, and there's a set of bunkers right in front of the green. The fescue around these bunkers is absolutely brutal. You would definitely prefer to be in the sand than be in the long fescue around the bunkers. But then in front of the bunkers is just closely mown Bermuda grass. So if a player misses left and short of the bunkers, he'll have to hit a chip with a lob wedge off a tight lie over those scary bunkers, To a very shallow green. The nightmare scenario obviously is leaving that chip in the fescue around the bunkers short of the green. That's just a recipe for an an automatic double bogey. So that's just one side of that green. There's all kinds of interesting mounds and runoffs and, and stuff on the other sides. And then the green itself has all these little slopes and ripples and shelves. It's just a, a fascinating green complex. And if you miss the green, if you get in a in a weird position around it, there are just a, a ton of possibilities. So I think that's going to be something very fun to keep track of. All right. So those were the three parts of the back nine that really stood out to me today. I'm sure you've heard enough praise and hype about L.A., already in the past couple of weeks right it seems like everybody really loves this golf course and is emphasizing how great it is but this really is a special course a special us open venue and i can't wait to see the world's best golfers compete on it let's take a quick break and then i'll be back with the historian wayne morrison to talk about the philadelphia school of golf architecture This episode of the Fried Egg podcast is brought to you by B Draddy. We are in the B dratty house here at the Fried Egg at the US Open. We're up in the hills above LA Country Club. When I was out on the course earlier today, I was wearing the Sport Polo as well as the Champ hoodie from Zero Restriction. Zero Restriction is part of the B Draddy family. Tomorrow I'm planning to wear a Sanders polo along with the Russell quarter zip really excited about the Russell quarter zip I just tried it on It's just the best quarter zip. I've ever put on like it. it, I don't I don't think there's any competition for it It really is kind of classy like usually. I'm not a big quarter zip guy I'm more of a sweater guy but this quarter zip just really delivers on the style element. And then like all BDraddy products, it's just so, so comfortable. So big BeDratty guy here. I'm very excited about this stuff. So here's the deal for fried egg listeners. If you use the code TFE30, you can get 30% off at bdrati.com. That's a pretty good deal. TFE30 at bdrati.com 30% off. All right. Thanks to be dratty Let's go back to the episode. All right. I'm here with Wayne Morrison. No relation. Wayne is a golf historian and the author of The Nature Faker, a biography of the golf architect William Flynn. And today we're talking about the so-called Philadelphia School of Golf Architecture. This was not an actual school but instead a group of golf architects centered on the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area during the 1910s and 20s. This group included the likes of George Crump, who designed Pine Valley, Hugh Wilson, who designed Marion, A.W. Tillinghast, William Flynn, and the architect of LACC North, George Thomas. Wayne, maybe you could start by telling me why you think the Philadelphia School is important to know about.
1: Well, I guess uh, Jeff Shackelford in his book wrote about it. Several schools of golf architecture. I guess there was the Ross School and the, um, the National School and things like that. But the Philadelphia School was, was I think, the earliest um, pure American school of uh, approach to golf architecture. While some of the members of the of the so called school had uh, experience in the old world playing golf, it was really a, a um, an innovative approach to golf, especially inland golf on some of the heavy clay soils that we have, but also, uh, some of the sand-based soils like uh, Atlantic City Country Club and Pine Valley and the like. But, um, it's, it's pretty interesting The the, you know, the, the, um, the uh, evolution of how this group of friends came together was, um, was all golf related. Golf started in Philadelphia a little bit later than some of the other cities like, um, Boston and and New York and Chicago. Uh, It was, uh, bastion of cricket and cricket cricket had a deep and strong hold on uh, the upper classes in philadelphia Uh, the baseball was uh, in the uh, other classes but um, once uh, golf really sort of germinated in philadelphia it really took off quite a bit and they were at a competitive disadvantage in in terms of uh, golf prowess and also golf architecture so these guys got together because i guess they got tired of getting beat by new york and boston the Leslie Cup was a was a platform for those kinds of competitions and uh, they they figured out that uh, we better design better golf courses to build better golfers and that was sort of the genesis of where these guys collaborated Colla- I think collaboration is a really you know is an underpinning of of the success of the Philadelphia school in terms of the the work output but um they they were they were friendly in competition uh you know they played a lot of golf together the the golf association of philadelphia was the earliest regional golf association and to this day that it's been a real uh, important platform for uh, golfers to compete against each other you know team competitions against uh, other clubs and um i think that was sort of the you know uh, that that was a part of the the process of of excellence or achieve, trying to achieve excellence in golf design because they were all in the philosophy that better golf courses produce better golfers.
0: That's an interesting philosophy to start with. We want better golf courses
1: because we're getting our asses kicked. Uh, yeah, I think uh, they they got along fabulously well. Kind of interesting from a you know socio sociology standpoint or whatever that uh, Flynn as a you know r- r- blue collar guy out of Boston came to Philadelphia to work, but he was accepted by the, the, the group of uh, high society types like Tillinghask and Trump, Crump and Wilson and, and Thomas, certainly. Thomas's father was a very successful banker. And, and, that, and actually, the, the wealth of Philadelphia helped create the, the opportunities to, d- to develop clubs and courses and, and have these uh, really wealthy gentlemen uh, golfers practice golf architecture.
0: Yeah. And it was an incredible collection of people who produced an incredible collection of golf courses. Now they did not call themselves the Philadelphia school. That's a label that we've put back onto them because there was such an exceptional concentration of golf architecture talent in this place at this time. So if we now see this as a school, were there kind of founders or leaders of the school among this group of architects that we've started talking about?
1: I think we could try to uh, um, sort of analyze and and, and predict what uh, you know who might have been the leaders, uh, but they never really talked about. You know they, they never they they never created a hierarchy. They treated each other very equally. I think uh, the fact that Pine Valley was a, an assembly spot for for all of them, they there was. There's seemingly no um, egos or anything like that, so so it's kind of hard to say. But uh, clearly, I think the two places that um, were the laboratory or the classrooms, let's call it, since we're talking about a school, uh, were, were Marion and Pine Valley. Marion first, then shortly thereafter, Pine Valley.
0: These two golf courses, <clears throat> incredibly important golf courses, Marion and Pine Valley, kind of evolved over the course of many years. So starting in the early 1910s and really continuing to come together over the next decade and more. And so the Philadelphia school, if there's a starting point of it, it might be somewhere in those early 1910s. So could you give me an idea of what the state of golf architecture in America was in the early 1910s, And how these individuals might have educated themselves to the extent that they could produce courses that were as advanced and as brilliant as Marion in Pine Valley.
1: Right. If it it was a school of golf architecture in the United States in the, you know, the turn of the century and through the early 1910s, the textbook would have been pretty thin (laughs) because there wasn't much, you know, golf was only 15 to 20 years in the making. Golf courses were mostly associated with um, uh, polo and riding clubs, so a lot of the the hazards were sort of steeplechase like, cop mounds, you know, um, you know, berms of of dirt and stone that were covered with grass, and then flat bunkers, like you would ride a horse over them. You had to try to hopefully hit a with hickory clubs and got a percha try to get the ball in the air over these features. So they were pretty rudimentary uh, kind of Victorian architecture is what we call it. And uh, the, the courses were short because of the <clears throat> technology and the, and uh, I guess the, uh, <clears throat> the lack of uh, sophisticated training you know, or, or teaching of, of golf. But um, you know, there were some pockets of uh, excellence and some of it that I think had a lot to do with people traveling to the UK to see the courses there. So Herbert Leeds, for instance, in, at Myopia and then down in Aiken with Palmetto Golf Club Garden City Golf Club, you know, it was McDonald that went to, uh, I guess a university at St. Andrews and he knew Tom or met, was introduced to Tom Morris and took lessons or so from them. So McDonald came back with the idea of template holes, you know, the well, you know, uh, replicating concepts either, uh, rigidly or conceptually, uh, of famous holes in the past. But, uh, you know, like I said, Philadelphia started a little bit later and got, uh, you know, it was on the, on the shoulders of these early golf architects and saw what they were doing um, and uh, sort of figured out, let's, um, you know, let's do, let's do things in, in an American sort of way. And that's innovation and, and uh, creativity. Uh, I guess one of the, the founding principles of the Philadelphia School is, is naturalism you know, Quaker Philadelphians, they don't like spending a lot of money. And uh, so they would use the land as much as possible and fit the golf courses into the land as much as possible. Uh, of course, you know, with horses and scrapers, it was a pretty tough thing to move heavy clay soils. We weren't talking about sand soils and, nat- and national. So there was a, you know, uh, a sort of an efficiency of construction also component to it. But it just happened to work because if you use the natural features of the land, no two holes are alike because no Grounds for golf are are exactly alike.
0: Now, the McDonald you mentioned earlier is, of course, Charles Blair McDonald, the architect behind the National Golf Links, as well as the Lido, which eventually went away. I think people know that story, but he was an enormously important figure in the transition from kind of early rudimentary American golf course design to something a little bit more sophisticated. But as you mentioned earlier, he had this idea of template holes, essentially adaptations of ideas that he saw in his travels in the UK. And what I hear you saying is that the Philadelphia architects were aware of MacDonald, obviously, I believe had visited MacDonald as well and gotten to know him a bit. And so they saw what his work was. No doubt they were impressed by what they saw at National Golf Links because it was sort of unlike any other American golf course at the time, but they decided to take things in a different direction. And I think that's pretty interesting. So what do you think were the things that they learned from McDonald and what do you think the things were that they decided to do differently?
1: Great question. I think uh, one of the things they learned from McDonald, one, one of many things they learned from McDonald was trying to achieve the ideal golf course, and what what was the ideal golf course? That philosophy sort of varied, but in M- McDonald's mind, it was to, to um, provide 18 great holes that challenged, uh, you know, uh, all aspects of the game. You now, the game sort of changed with it, with uh, balls and implements changing. I think they also uh, recognized uh, McDonald stressed the importance of uh, agronomic, you know, solutions as well. So um it, it a more scientific approach to golf design, designing on paper, using topographic maps and things like that. I think in that, in that regard, Will, um, McDonald was very influential. I think, uh, and, and some of the guys were, you know, in the Philadelphia school, were utilizing templates of a sort. Um, if you look at Tillinghest's uh, Somerset Hills, there's Principal's Nose, there's Redan, there's all kinds of things. <clears throat> if you look at William Flynn, you know, um, five or six years later, you know he had uh, conceptual holes. You know he had uh, his idea of what a redan is. Uh, it was different than McDonald's redan. I mean, even the Mc- redan that Flynn did at Shinnecock Hills was different than the McDonald redan. Very, very much on the same site. McDonald's redan was below the the tee and and used the natural right to left slope of the ground. Flynn uh, built the green well well above the tee and and uh, it was an aerial shot. Um, the other thing I think that where, um, the, uh, the Philadelphia school may have, uh, you know, uh, refined <clears throat> architecture was not having out and back routings. If you look at nationals routing, it's, it's out and back. The wind is pretty much in, you know, it doesn't change direction from hole to hole very much, except when the r- wind changes in, from morning to afternoon. But then you look next door and you look at Shinnecock and there's a series of triangles that wind is coming at you from all sorts of different directions. I think they, uh, you know, they they just they they had a a, a, a sense of uh, how they could um, use the wind to increase the challenge, increase the 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 variety of and uh, and shot testing. Uh, shot testing, I think, is a, is an important uh, result of the Philadelphia School. Uh, William Flynn wrote about it, talked about it, and uh, if you think about playing his courses. He tests your shots at Huntington Valley. You had to hit. You were rewarded if you could hit a draw off a fade lie or a fade off a draw lie. So there was, um, you know, a, a really increasing uh, sort of demand on the golfers to be able to play, you know, very subtle um, in in a way strategy. You know, being able to think about, you know, the the, the shot but also really highly um evolving the the uh, demand on the, you know both mental and physical demand of the, of the play.
0: Hmm. You know something that's so interesting about what you're saying about the Philadelphia school is that you know before a lot of this architecture American golf course design was very directly indebted to other models mm-hmm. the architects often came from Scotland, were just sort of golf pros who who came over from you know the the British Isles and and were you know there because they knew about golf in a way that not many Americans knew about golf and they designed some of the very early courses. And then McDonald's work, while obviously incredibly inventive, creative, and still holds up today brilliantly, was directly intentionally inspired by old world models and it seems like some of the members of the Philadelphia school were trying to figure out what American golf course architecture looked like do you think there was something like that going on in, oh, in Philadelphia? oh a- absolutely
1: school? Garrett you bring up a really good point not only was it in the architecture but but McDonald was uh, bent on in making sure that the rules and regulations of golf were were established were anchored in the in the rules and regulations of the RNA where some of the philadelphians and and others were you know trying to you know the usga was going to be something it was going to be a golf association for american golfers and interestingly you know rules changes rules differences don't do have an effect on architecture and uh so i think that you know they sort of uh, they are links in the same chain that 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 created uh, you know what we know today is um you know um, an american style of, of architecture and you see it. I mean, look at, uh, you know, if you look at um, Chicago, you know, the original Chicago golf and the Chicago golf that evolved later on by, you know, McDonald and Raynor, and you look at national, there were conventions. And uh, if you if you think of some of the stuff that Thomas was doing out in California with tunnels, you know, going through mountains and elevators to get to certain locations and really uh, trying to find the best holes, no matter, and, 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 uh, hurdles be where, you know, be damned. It, it's pretty impressive how, uh, not radical, I won't say radical, but, uh, you know, really creative. Some of the routings and, and, uh, and whole designs were,
0: we could certainly devote an entire podcast each or series of podcasts each to Marion and Pine Valley alone. I'm game <laughs> <laughs> one day. Yeah. Some day. I mean, the Pine Valley story is one that I've been, I've been fascinated with for, for a long time, and I, I can't get enough of it. Um, I'm sure there's there's equally compelling material about Marion. Obviously, we are going to give a very kind of short synopsis here of uh, either of those projects, but maybe we can just focus on Pine Valley for a second uh, and the importance of that course as, as you said earlier, a classroom of golf architecture. So tell me about the process that created this course and some of the things that were unique that were being done there.
1: I I think it's a great idea, Garrett. And I think it would also lead to, you know, I don't want to exclude some of the other guys in the Philadelphia school. Yes. I guess if if left to my own, I talk about Flynn quite a bit. But um, Pine Valley was was a sort of solution to uh, all these uh, really avid golfers that wanted to play golf year round. Philadelphia would get, you know, is you know, just because of the, the soil, uh, when the temperatures dropped the soil and the, 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 snow would stay on the ground much longer. And it was a bit colder. There was a little higher elevation. And in New Jersey, they had the sandy soil that would keep the, would retain the heat a lot more. So you could play golf many more days in the shoulder seasons that you could in Philadelphia. So these guys would take the train from Philadelphia to a, a Atlantic city, which was sort of, you know, their haven for uh, getting away for golf. It was a, a lot of Quakers went there and, and vacation there and um, and played golf there. So the interesting thing, I, you know, there's a, you know, the story is, you know, how did uh, George Crump find Pine Valley? You know, did, his, did, his, did he hunt and did his father hunt there? Or did, you know, when he was on the train with Tillinghast and Flynn and, and Thomas and Wilson and all, did they just, you know, did he look out the window and see this? unbelievably you know uh tumbling terrain that in south jersey is you know really rare and say you know like, and 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 decide to see you know to see if that was suitable for golf or you know probably both reasons i uh, i guess but anyway he he lived in he was born in philadelphia lived in merchantville which is not far from clementon new jersey and uh bought the property he bought enough acreage to have two golf courses one of which was going to be for women Uh, which is kind of interesting because until recently, Pine Valley was an exclusive domain for men. Uh, Women weren't even allowed to get out of their cars in the parking lot. But, um, Trump, Crump started, uh, you know, he lived on site, lived in a tent or a a cabin or something and, and started, um, crafting the golf course, had his friends come by and they all happened to, you know, they were all the, you know, the Tillinghast and Thomas and Flynn and Wilson and, and the like. And, um, they, he started uh, laying out the golf course, but being an amateur, and you know, he really sort of painted himself into corners. Then he, uh, I guess, Colt was coming over to uh, do some work in in Detroit and and elsewhere, in Chicago, and uh, he stopped by in Philadelphia, and Crump engaged him to to help him figure it figure out the the uh, the, the problem where he painted himself into, and that was pretty much the fifth hole. I don't if you've been to Pine Valley, that's the the really uh, iconic uphill par five over water and, you know, with par
0: three over,
1: par, sorry, par three, yeah, with, long par three. Yeah. Long par three. If
0: you've seen the shells, wonderful world of golf uh, at Pine Valley, uh, one of the players came to grief uh, on the right side of, uh, of that hole. So that's, that's something worth looking up, but in any case, sorry. Uh, yeah, it was a loss in little, I think. I, it wasn't Lawson Little. Uh, it was Gene Littler. Oh, <laughs> is Gene who Littler. it was? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, right. I, I was. There's I too would, many I, facts I, in this brain. Yeah, By- Byron Nelson and Gene Littler. I I think yeah. I, I intentionally the, did not say the right. names because I wasn't quite remembering who was in that match. Uh, but yeah, I've completely it. sidetracked us. Uh, you're, you're talking about the uh, the fifth hole, is uh, yeah. So know, that was of sort the of the uh, the the,
1: uh, the solution that sort of the, you know all the other puzzle pieces came together. Unfortunately. Uh, George Crump, um, passed away without, with, with five holes remaining. And, uh, there's a, you know, some researcher found out that he committed suicide. So they got together some of Crump's friends, you know, very close associates, Simon Carr, I think he was a reverend and a, um, a, a. H. Smith. And they sort of wrote down what they thought Crump wanted to do when they matched up the two uh, remembrances, they were very similar. Uh, Hugh Allison was brought in and, um, you know, they finished the, go- and you know, with, with Hugh and Alan Wilson overseeing the, 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 the finish of the, of the five incomplete holes, they, uh, they finished the golf course. But in any case, uh, these guys collaborated and, 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 and saw Crump's vision to, to fruition. They, they solved the agronomic issues. And today it's, it's it's you know one of the I mean if it's not it's the second best course in Philadelphia but it's the number one course in the world.
0: <laughs> but, uh, now you're, you're ranking Marion the best course in Philadelphia. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, there's a little Homer Homerism there maybe.
0: So when you consider a figure like George Thomas, who was part of this group, mm-hmm. though not necessarily a leading member. Of this group, he wasn't. He went to California for the weather and the roses. Exactly, and the roses. Yeah, and and also to recuperate after the war. Um, oh yeah, that's true. So you know, George Thomas had been to Marion, had been to Pine Valley, had seen the processes that created those courses. Mm-hmm. And so you know, although the LA courses are are not your area of expertise, when you just look at those courses from afar. Do you see certain carryover characteristics from these Philadelphia courses in in George Thomas's work?
1: Well, I certainly see the strategy, you know, strategic nature of of golf design, you know, exemplified in, in what Thomas did. Maybe not the look of the bunkering, but the placement of the bunkers and 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 utilization of uh hazards, I guess they could in some cases they were dry washes, the what, what do they call those?
0: The barrancas.
1: Oh, barrancas, yeah. Um, you know the the way he and the, the way they used angles, I think, is is really um, reminiscent of some things that I see here in Philadelphia. I, I you, know, you, you could easily say that the stuff that he did in California was really, you know, it was genius and it was uh, concepts or at least you know philosophies that were transplanted from the Philadelphia school.
0: Yeah, you know, something that Jeff Shackelford said to us during our interview that we did with him about George Thomas is that. One thing that seems to have impressed Thomas, I don't know that there's historical confirmation of this or, or anything like that, but one commonality between a Pine Valley and an LA country club or even a, a Riviera is just the, the sheer ambition of the architecture. To use the word that you used earlier, the scale of the features of the bunkers of the greens they're built to match the landscape. And that's something that Pine Valley had that was not necessarily unprecedented in American architecture because McDonald had some ambitious uh, constructions of, of his own at his, at his courses. But certainly it was unusual to see a course that was just that spectacular and impressive in the way that it came at you visually, um, and so you know, L.A. Country Club uh, after Thomas and Bell's renovation there in the late twenties, and from the beginning, Riviera maybe had some of that some of that character of of just the ambition and the scale of the project.
1: Yeah, and you and I learned one thing from watching some of your uh, your uh, podcasts and and interviews. Was it Bel Air where um, Thomas had the really interesting notion of uh, multiple pars or or pl- courses within a course? Was it? That's was that's L A Country Club. Oh, L A Country Club. Oh, so I'm really looking forward to seeing the stuff on TV.
0: Yeah,
1: that to me, I don't know where he got that. I mean, that that seemed to be something uh, you know out of his own brain rather than a you know something that um, he, he discussed and and was formulating when he was b- back in Philadelphia. You know, the, the, there was a notion of uh, elasticity being designed in courses that were coming out of Philadelphia, because if you think about the, the era of of golf, you know, transferring uh, the, the technology of a gutta percha ball to a Haskell ball and and hickory shafts to steel shafts and things like that. Balls were getting in the air more. Elasticity was being designed into courses you you think about you know it may not be that evident but if you look at the bunkering at Marion it's really the same today it, you know except for the second hole where Gill moved the green back to where Flynn wanted to put it and some of the bunkers were were uh, moved a little bit downrange thirty yards or so in, in the case of bunkers that would have come into play on the second shot uh, the bunkering is the same today as it was when a, for, when the course opened but some of the bunkers that were carry bunkers off a second shot that you know so that it was Mis- misplayed um you know if you were in, coming out of the rough or something like that now t- that bunker is now a, an effective bunker for you know long hitters that want to hit a driver so it's, the, it's they're kind of repurposed in in a way um and i think that's because they these guys knew that the technology and, and better athletes were going to be playing golf i mean flynn wrote in 1927 that if we don't do something about the ball we're gonna have to design 7,500 to 8,000 yard golf courses <laughs> He was pretty good <laughs>
0: saw the future there, yeah, so <laughs> yeah. so uh,
1: there was this philosophy, especially rooted into designing championship courses and 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 that's one of the things that make these courses stand the test of time so well,
0: yeah well, that's really interesting, clearly, what we 'll see this week at at l a country club during the u s open there are some. Uh, some little tendrils that that go back to the Philadelphia school and some of the exceptional architecture that that came out of that. So uh, it's been really interesting to hear about that stuff. And thanks for coming on the podcast, Wayne.
1: Okay. Thanks. That's very great. It's very gracious to you to have me again. And uh, if you know, if you are interested in talking about specifics down the road, I'd be happy to be involved in that. And uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm going to continue to enjoy the work you guys do. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's fun to be a part of it and fun to listen to it. So thanks.
0: This episode of the fried egg podcast was produced and edited by Matt Rusius. Thank you, Matt. The single best way to support the fried egg is to join club TFE. We've been doing some fun stuff in club TFE this week. We did a profile of Rustic Canyon Golf Course, which is a public golf course that nearish to the LA area. Um, We also did our monthly video on LA North, where Andy basically went through every hole at the golf course and picked out one feature of each hole that he thinks is interesting. Really great video, Uh, and I can say that because I didn't have anything to do with producing it. That was in Andy and Cameron Hurtis production. Really good stuff that is exclusive to members in club tfe if you're interested in joining go to the slash membership and check out what we're offering there all right thank you for listening and we'll be back again soon